0: I am honored to be here with you this afternoon to present the first of three parts in this year's Julius Brown Gay Memorial Lectures. It is fitting for a devout Baptist businessman to be remembered not only by his son and family, but also by a community that trains and equips those who will minister to countless Baptists in the business world as servant leaders. I count it all joy to have a part in this celebration of Mr. Gay's faithful witness. As we begin, I would like to take you back to the time at which the topic of these lectures became an unrelenting question within my own mind. And so, the soul of a leader, acuity from antiquity. It was 3:30 in the morning, May 23rd, 2018. I was sitting up on my bed. Outside my hotel window, the city of Chicago was fast asleep. I wished I was. My eyes were bloodshot from being up all night talking and texting with a couple of longtime friends. The Southwestern Seminary Board of Trustees had been meeting for many hours and my friends and I were all hoping to hear some news from within that meeting. We were all concerned about the future of our seminary. I was in Chicago for a professional academic conference. The North American Patristic Society was holding its annual meeting, and this year I was serving my term as president of the society. I had board meetings to chair and a scholarly address to deliver to the members. My concerns that day wandered back and forth between the very serious situation at Southwestern and the responsibilities immediately pressing upon me. My plan that night was simply to serve my term as president of NAPS faithfully. Back in Fort Worth, prior to the early morning hours of 23 May, I wasn't part of anybody's plan. I was simply the dean of the School of Theology. Suddenly, my mobile phone rang. Dr. Bingham, this is the chairman of the Southwestern Seminary Board of Trustees. I'm sorry to call you at this time of the morning. It's not a problem, I replied. How may I help you? I recall hoping that I sounded more alert and nonplus than I felt. A thousand thoughts and questions raced inside my head. Well, this is new, I said to myself. It's not every day the chairman of the seminary's board of trustees calls you in the pre-dawn hours while you're out of town. The chairman continued, "'Dr. Bingham, the trustees have just voted to appoint you as interim president of Southwestern Seminary upon your acceptance.' I must admit, I did not know quite how to reply. I'm sure to the chairman, the silence on my end of the line must have sounded endless and unsettling. Well, sir, I'm completely at a loss for words and feel unprepared to assume such an office. We discussed briefly how the trustees had reached their decision, and at points in the conversation I could hear him consulting from time to time with another person who I assumed to be another trustee. I had several questions for him. How long did he expect the interim to last? Three months to a year, he answered, but couldn't say for sure. It would all depend upon when the search committee was appointed and how long it took them to do their work. I asked him if I could pray about it and talk to my wife. I told him I would let him know later that day. Although the Washington Post had already published its story and my name was now both in the mainline and social media, I decided to let Pamela keep sleeping back in our home in Fort Worth. I called her at 7 o'clock after remaining awake all night. We discussed the changes that the board had made, and then I said, sweetheart, there is one more thing that concerns me. Immediately she asked with alarm, oh no, have you been fired? (laughs) I think I said something else. I then explained the earlier phone call from the trustee chairman, and we both decided the right thing to do was to accept the appointment. I called the chairman back, after also briefly speaking to my sister, Marty, and said yes. It was at this point in a hotel room in Chicago that I was flooded with internal questions about the nature of distinctly Christian executive leadership. It was there for the first time in my life that I began to think deeply, in an urgent, almost panicked way, about the heart and soul of leadership. I had been a seminary department and divisional chair, a college associate dean and dean of a seminary school, but this was something remarkably different while also something the same. Academic study of the question of leadership has traced the development of thought through a variety of constructed theories. Great man theory, classical theory, scientific, environmental or worker needs trait theory, group theory, situational or contingency, behavioral, organizational, transactional, leader, follower, transformational, servant, social context, leadership, ethics, and moral development, biology, neuroscience, and system and authentic leadership. But it is the popular most corporate-oriented literature that has driven the debate in the public square. In that hotel room, these books were not unknown to me. You've heard their chapter divisions of essentials as often as I have. Be proactive, be goal-minded, prioritize mutuality, understand others, listen to others, synergize, renew yourself, get the right people on the bus, face reality, simplicity, discipline, technology. Endurance of product, reframing goals, positive intentions, transform defeatism into possibility, correctly comprehend the problem, speak winning words, project an inspiring future, connect to maximize communication. These type of topics have controlled the discussion in the past years. We cannot overemphasize the influence that the secular corporate culture had upon this literature. Although many are unaware, for instance, it was Robert K. Greenleaf, an AT&T executive, who in 1970 composed his essay, The Servant as Leader. He gave birth to the modern discussion and may have even coined the term that is so popular among evangelicals, servant leadership. Evangelicals may like to think that they are always thinking primarily or initially from a biblical perspective, but contemporary culture plays such an influential role in the development of our own thinking. Much of the more popular discussion has seemed to focus on tactics for keen management, productive direction, and winning sales strategies. It was no surprise to read last month in both the New York Times and the Washington Post on the occasion of the 124th anniversary of the New York Public Library that the most popular nonfiction book in their collection and the only nonfiction book to make the top 10 list was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, published in 1936. Over the years, it had been checked out 285,000 times. It lost the race, of course, to the fiction of Keats' The Snowy Day and Zeus's The Cat in the Hat and Orwell's 1984. What was insightful, though, is that when New Yorkers default to nonfiction, They are interested in rules about how to be pleasant, lists of ways to flatter others, avoid conflict, and gain relational strategic advantage. Such lists for gaining influence in relationships with others, in Carnegie's case, arising out of the challenges that the American workforce was still facing four years after the Great Depression, set a tone in business thinking about success and leadership Richard Filoni, in his Business Insider article, points out how Carnegie's book still sets the course for essential leadership habits that, in his mind, help leaders accomplish what he sees as the art of leadership, adjusting people's behavior to maximize their potential. Frankly, I've never thought of leadership as behavior modification, especially Christian leadership. It falls so short of Jesus' vision of inner transformation, of the good news, of new birth, justification, sanctification, and glorification. But this is where the focus on habits leads, and such has been one of the historical results. From the list of leadership theories quickly listed above, we might briefly talk about just a few more prominent recent ones. In the 1980s, for example, the transformational leadership theory emphasized developing followers in order to form them in ways that would benefit the organization. The leaders' charisma, motivation techniques, intellectual stimulation, and layering of individual attention to influence followers were all employed, but the goal is organizational success. Rather than in transactional leadership theory, where a -a stick-and-a-carrot approach is used to move followers to complete tasks. The servant leadership theory, also popular, has leaders prioritize through service, followers over themselves. The goal in this case is not organizational outcomes, but the quality of the service itself. The success of servant leadership has been shown to be closely associated with the leader's characteristics of empathy and integrity, and with a focus not merely upon the leader, but upon the followers, and his or her buy-in, a point emphasized by Mary Barra, chair and CEO of GM, in her interview, Given to Fortune, on how she led the company through crisis. In her book, Building Leadership Character, published just last year, however, Amy Newman helps to orient us to a new direction. The discussion has seemed to shift, Shift at least in some circles, from the methodology and ingredients of leadership to the character of the leader. On this note, Newman writes, More recently, Bill George, author, former CEO, and senior fellow at Harvard Business School, popularized the concept of authentic leadership. In this theory, we see clear connection to character. In his book, Discover Your True North, George credits revived leadership expert Warren Bennis for saying leadership is character and for identifying leadership as a lifelong process of self-discovery. Warren Bennis, who died in 2014, was university professor and distinguished professor of business administration and founding chairman of the Leadership Institute at the University of Southern California. Bennis was a pioneer in academic leadership studies and heralded as a chief contributor to the field. His 1989 book, On Becoming a Leader, emphasized the progressive nature of leader formation and grounded the essence of leadership in what he termed the leader's authenticity. True leadership rested on the leader being who he or she truly was. In the introduction to the revised 2003 version, he wrote, Leadership is always about character. And again, timeless leadership is always about character, and it is always about authenticity. Bennis' concept of character development is a process of self-discovery, and both he and George are more optimistic about the foundational ethical core of human beings than is Christian orthodoxy. For instance, in an article for the Harvard Business School Working Knowledge Journal, where he was addressing challenges to his theory of how leaders develop as they grow in awareness of their authentic self, he recounts that one author had asked him about the possibility that deep down one was actually unethical. How would this process of self-discovery work in that case? He writes that the challenger asked, what if your real self is a jerk? To this query he responded, people are not born as jerks nor does this behavior reflect their authentic selves. Evangelicals are unable to agree with such anthropology. I'm afraid that the fall has saddled humanity with many an authentic jerk. Nevertheless, George, Bennis, and Newman are right about their central thesis. Leadership is fundamentally about character. Bennis cites former president of Hebrew Union College, Alfred Gottschalk, to make his point. Character is vital in a leader. Gottschalk said it is the basis for everything else. In his mind, character is the difference between doing things right and doing the right thing. According to Martin Luther King Jr., it is the dream criteria by which people ought to be judged. Due to the focal point of the contemporary literature, we must contrast character with style, habits, traits, or strategies. Leadership requires flexibility because situations and challenges are constantly in flux. A set style or list of learned techniques cannot be applied in every case. George helps us think our way through this as he explains that if competency and leadership is focused on one's character, A leader is able to plan and respond effectively in changing environments with stable continuity. His or her character, his or her soulish orientation to doing the right thing will not vary. The right thing, the virtuous thing, not the expedient thing or the thing consistent with a particular theory or style, will be the goal. One style should be the outward expression of one's core virtues, one's soul. Style that is void of virtue, style without character, makes one merely a persona. Without this pre-understanding, well-intentioned leaders will find their cultures, traditions, experiences, or organizations shaping their style, and they will lose credibility. And the opportunity to empower is, if empowering their followers even, is an intended goal. To become authentic leaders, people must adopt flexible styles that fit the situation and capabilities of their teammates. At times, authentic leaders are coaches and mentors, inspiring others and empowering their teammates to lead through the most important tasks without a great deal of supervision. At other times, authentic leaders must make very difficult decisions, terminating people and going against the will of the majority as required to meet the situational imperatives. These difficult actions can be taken while still retaining one's authenticity. Mary M. Crossan and her colleagues in dialogue with Aristotle in contemporary studies recognize in contrast with Bennis that character in broad swath can be good or bad, virtuous or not. Yet helpfully for their purposes, they set forth that character only encompasses values that are virtuous. Furthermore, character involves a coherence or interconnectivity of the comprehensive set of virtues or character strengths, so that in their conception, the ontology of character is that it represents the wholeness of being. They explain more fully the link between character, versatility and style, and the flexibility of a leader to adapt to different contexts and circumstances without drifting from the soul's steady, virtuous nature. The dimensions of a leader's character, they suggest, can be thought of as a repository of resources that leaders can use to adjust their behavior across situations so that their leadership behaviors remain virtuous. Contingency or situational theories of leadership tend to rely on competencies and leadership style to suggest that different situations call for different kinds of leadership. Such theories need to be adjusted with the understanding that different dimensions of one's character can be applied in different situations, broadening the versatility of leaders and thereby enabling them to adapt the correct, the correct uh, action to the context dictating the type of leader that is required. Newman puts it this way. Rather than following a situational leadership model, for example, which tells leaders how to act in certain circumstances and figuring out what a leadership should, what a leader should do, we can ask a deeper question. What kind of person do I want to be? Then we can ask, what skills do I need to get there? Frances Hesselbein, author and former CEO of the Girl Scouts, agrees with Crossan's view. She affirms that leadership is about how to be not how to do. As she says in the end, we know it is the quality and character of the leader that determines the result. George argues that a shift in leadership theory has occurred in the direction that our discussion has been moving. An emphasis on authentic character rather than style or technique has taken the high ground. No longer is leadership about developing charisma Emulating other leaders, looking good externally, and acting in one's self interest, as was so often the case in the late 20th century. Nor should leadership be conflated with your leadership style, managerial skills, or competencies. These capabilities are very important, but they are the outward manifestation of who you are as a person. You cannot fake it to make it, because people sense intuitively whether you are genuine. It is in this direction that I would like to see the discourse travel. However, I would prefer to put it on a bearing that arises out of scripture and the Christian tradition. I am asking for a new focus on the essence of leadership, a new discourse about distinctively Christian leadership, a pivot, in short, from leadership to leader, from habits to character, from gaining followers to being virtuous. Let me repeat from leadership to leader, from habits to character, from gaining followers to being virtuous. I wish I had been able to put this all together that night in Chicago. I wasn't. I'm still being formed. What I hope to show in the rest of today's lecture and the two that follow is how portions of my thought on the question of what constitutes distinctive Christian leadership has developed. When we put the adjective Christian before the noun leadership, everything changes. The noun can no longer mean what it meant without its qualifier, without its modifier. We are not ultimately interested in a secular, Buddhist, or Muslim model of leadership. It is a Christian model that we seek. Since my greatest interest is ancient Christianity, by default, I begin by qualifying the character model of leadership with the sources of that pre-modern Christian era. This will require, in my understanding, feasting also on the classics of Greco-Roman culture. Learning from these texts, as well as the Old Testament, will help us understand both the New Testament and patristic literature. We are not concentrating on the early church because it is in some way superior to, say, the medieval or Reformation church. We are looking to that era for insight into the soul of the Christian leader for two reasons. One, being thoroughly skeptical of the structures of modernity, I am interested in the assumptions of pre-modernity. And two, because it is my area of research and I don't know anything else. Come back with me then, if you will, to the late fourth century, where we find Gregory of Nazianzus meditating upon the nature of Christian leadership and the dignity of the priestly pastoral office. In his second oration, we find a very sober and pious reflection on the character of the minister. He wrote the treatise within a unique set of circumstances. His father had quite suddenly ordained him to ecclesiastical ministry in a manner that was unsettling to Gregory. He had a proclivity for the monastic contemplative life and was not comfortable with his father's plans, seeking in his discomfort to return to his spiritual repose. Apparently, also, he was ashamed to be associated with the contemporary predominant climate of Christian leadership. Bishops and priests were pitifully impious in his day. His inner distress was such that he abruptly fled from Nazianzus and his ministerial office and returned to the comforts of Pontus. We are unsure what Gregory did during his time back in Pontus with Basil of Caesarea, but it likely involved considerable reflection on the role of the Christian leader, whether priest or bishop, and the proper ascetic, biblical, and theological preparation for such a weighty position themes that Gregory would soon take up in his early orations. Particularly his second one, delivered soon upon his return to Nazianzus shortly prior to Easter of 362. This sermon is our interest here. While apologizing to his hometown community for his abrupt departure and offering, in a manner of speaking, a defense for it, the oration is a classical homily on the priesthood. It became a standard treatment of the question and was looked to, for example, by both John Chrysostom and Gregory the Great to fuel their own thought. Gregory's basic claim is that qualification for the priestly office is to be found in virtue. Gregory composed the oration not only in the midst of personal struggle, but also in broader cultural setting threatened with serious doctrinal and pastoral concerns. On the one hand, in January of 360, the Council of Rimini, Constantinople, had formulated its homoion creed that affirmed only the likeness rather than the equality of the son with the father. Quite distressingly, it had been signed by Gregory's father and Basil's Caesarean bishop, Dionysius, or pardon me, Dionysius, as it had gained eastern support. Of course, too, on the other hand, in November of 361, the apostate emperor Julian ascended to power. Added to this mix of ecclesiastical heresy and imperial paganism was the perversion of the leading clergy. Gregory soul was vexed by what he saw. The bishops lusted for power and were driven by personal ambition. In his mind, this corruption of clerical character was to blame for both the impiety among the believers and doctrinal error. In particular, he criticizes priests for lack of preparation, wrong motives, and reprehensible character, for presuming to lead others in the pious life while they themselves have not been sanctified. Gregory's chief concern with the Christian leaders in his context is that they lack virtue, for virtue is his model. It is the essence of a leader's soul. Over and again, he directs the congregation's attention to this foundational principle. Those who lead, pastor, and teach in order to perfect the community after the instruction of Paul in Ephesians 4 are to excel in virtue and nearness to God. The leaders whose character he condemns are opportunists. They regard leadership as a means to a plush livelihood and authority rather than as a life that exemplifies virtue and ministry for which they are accountable. Gregory notes that as hard as it may be to submit to leadership, it is far more difficult to qualify as a leader for the standards of virtue are so very high and so very rare. A leader like silver or gold must be authentic to be a true, credible leader. The value of a gilded or alloyed metal plummets in relation to a real precious metal. Likewise, leaders who will definitely find themselves in a dizzying array of situations can never ring false or alloyed. They must excel in virtue, although goodness takes root in our nature only slowly and with much difficulty and trial, while evil implants itself so quickly so easily. Would-be leaders who are not formed with virtue cannot model goodness or character for their followers. Employing the art of painting as a metaphor, Gregory teaches that those who have not painted their own souls with virtue cannot serve as virtuous artistic models for others, which is the whole point of Christian leadership as put forth in Ephesians 4. The body of Christ, the community that follows the leader, is to grow, to be built up, to gain maturity in love and doctrine by means of the leader's gifted ministry. As Kuzis and Posner, authors of the book Credibility, say, moral structure, moral capacity, and moral fortitude combine to make a distinguished moral force in the world. One who lacks moral virtue brings only impotence, regression, and loss. As one continues to read deeper into Gregory's sermon, it becomes evident that one of the concerns that probably led to his departure from Nazianzus soon after his ordination is the high standard to which he held the priest. He must have felt his own inadequacy. Those fit for leadership, those adequate to teach and model, must not only have kept themselves free from evil, that is, they must not only be characterized by the absence of the bad, but they must be full of, of the good in obedience to Psalm 34.4, depart from evil and do good. Vice needs to be erased from their souls and in its place, virtue needs to have been written. Any progress in sanctification should not bring sanctification, pardon me, should not bring satisfaction. Instead, they should continually yearn for what goodness is still lacking and measure themselves not against their neighbor, but against the commandments of Scripture. Furthermore, from Scripture they should not expect small scales or low standards. Scripture demands excellence in virtue, and of course this is the case. For the one who demands much also provides much. As Paul writes, all things are from the Father. Although Gregory believes the required level of virtue is unreachable, he believes the Almighty Transcendent One has reached down. Virtue for Gregory provides the means for a necessary relationship between leader and follower, for a truly Christian permanent dynamic of spiritual formation. Within a Christian community, followers are not to follow because they are coerced. Regrettably, however, inauthentic would-be leaders who fall short of requisite virtue can only fall back on coercion. They are unable to model goodness, and so by their character they are unable to persuade and exemplify the end goal. Such people in positions of leadership are only able to move the community by chastisement, oppression, and the force of authority. Any such advance or change is merely temporary, for as soon as the pressure is released, the original position or direction is resumed. Gregory is warning about what Sheryl Forbes calls the religion of power. Without question, Wayne Alderson says in his foreword to her book, the quest for power lies at the heart of many of the problems that arise in the complexities of work. And when power becomes the goal, then love, dignity, and respect die. Those who concern themselves primarily with power let's not call them leaders, are not seeking primarily to serve the follower or constituent. They act out of self-interest. When someone has entered the sanctuary of power and begun walking down its aisles, Forbes argues, we know it. It shows in small ways at first, later in larger and larger ways. A person cannot disguise or hide it. The point of power is to be visible, and it promises visibility to the worshiper. For such people, achieving and maintaining power becomes their drive. For in power is the authority to force and thereby to produce what they erroneously consider to be real advancement. Virtuous leaders, in contrast, bring about legitimate, permanent, enduring change and progress as they model, persuade, and minister with benevolence and kindness, while followers freely choose the better path. According to Gregory, virtuous leaders follow Peter's teaching, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. The authority by which the Christian leader leads is not power, but love, not force, but example, not coercion, but reasoned persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve, he says. Such leaders whose responsibility are human souls are not developed quickly. Even the secular theorists recognize this. Newman minces no words when she writes that character is developed over a lifetime, and Gregory believed that therefore leaders must be carefully prepared. Central to such preparation is a long and deep immersion in Scripture, and not just the memorization of a pious phrases or a brief acquaintance with the Psalms, which was apparently the boast of some contemporary clergy. Thorough biblical and spiritual training would require years of preparation and could not be rushed. Little wonder, then, that Gregory's ideal minister might well be a man of gray hair and advanced age. Until a prospective priest has, through long philosophical training, mastered his passions, purified his understanding, and sufficiently surpassed others in nearness to God, it would be dangerous to entrust him with the direction of souls or to place him as a mediator between God and humanity. In light of such a demanding view of leader formation, we should not be surprised to find that Gregory's ideal example for the Christian leader was the Hebrew lawgiver Moses. He was both suitably prepared by God to approach him and to lead the people of Israel toward real change. Suitability for leadership for Gregory was much less common than it might be for today. Candidates for office, in his mind, were rare. Gregory, thinking of Moses, put it this way, For it is not everyone who may draw near to God, but only one who, like Moses, can bear the glory of God. Ultimately, this is where an emphasis on supernaturally revealed moral qualities as the foundation to leadership theory leads. Christian leaders, those who are formed by God in trials of fire and through deep internalization of his word, Those who model exemplary progress in virtue are uncommon, atypical, scarce, and out of the ordinary. One does not arrive at this relatively lonely place without practicing a monastic-like constant devotion to prayer, fasting, memorization, and rumination on Scripture. Again, Gregory implies this is another reason why he initially withdrew from Nazianzus and returned to his contemplative life with Basil and Pontus. Progress in virtue is inseparably linked for him to the disciplines of radical discipleship. This is why, for Gregory, only Moses, who alone had climbed the mountain and penetrated to the interior of the cloud, was prepared to receive God's law and instruct the multitudes. Far from being opposed to the active of life of pastoral care, the life of contemplation is presented as a requirement for effective priestly service. To accept a position of authority without this spiritual experience would be folly and peril. In her study, Holy Bishops in Late Antiquity, the Nature of Christian Leadership in an Age of Transition, Claudia Rapp recognizes Gregory's emphasis concerning asceticism in leadership formation as a major component of ancient Episcopal authority. Ascetic authority is the crucial, the critical link between spiritual authority and pragmatic authority. Following the persecutions, in step with their imitation of Jesus and the martyrs, bishops christened with spiritual authority by the Holy Spirit embraced the daily martyrdom of asceticism. If gifted and called by the Holy Spirit to this life, as John Chrysostom clarifies, if one possessed a genuine desire and noble purpose, the ascetic life was ideal for the formation of virtue. Such a life involved voluntary poverty. Self-denial, fasting, detachment from the world's consuming passions, silence with self-introspection, and prayer in solitude, as well, of course, a thirst to know the divine mysteries. The ascetics spent their days reading and meditating on scriptures, reciting biblical verses, and chanting psalms. Even while they were engaged in manual labor to support themselves, their activity was accompanied by the continuous murmur of biblical recitation. It was this life, their experiences, struggles, immersion into scripture and prayer that produced a certain type of leader-teacher. Frequently, those ordained as priests and bishop were not truly spiritual men, but instead self-promoting, well-educated, rhetorically polished, administratively skilled, prosperous, well-respected, prominent members of the community. Their teaching was based on formal learning, directed to large groups and comprised of doctrinal and moral instruction aimed at diverse audiences in order to keep them moving towards general Christian morality. The teaching of such a bishop was not that of a spiritual guide designed to encourage his audience to imitate his example and to change their lives in dramatic ways on the narrow path to personal perfection. Such teaching was not characterized by life lessons that emerged from the text and were illuminated by a life of radical discipleship. It was unlike the instruction that characterized, for instance, the ascetic Desert Fathers. For them, teaching consisted of practical advice on how to achieve personal spiritual progress. The mature within the desert community, as bearers of the Holy Spirit, would impart to a disciple wisdom gained through biblical meditation and prayer within the trenches of asceticism through close personal encounter. They would do so as fathers. For Gregory, The time he had spent in the ascetic life had formed him in ways essential for his return to Nazianzus and the ministry of servant leadership there. He understood his life of deprivation and contemplation to be a sacrificial offering to Jesus for the bounty of salvation. He sacrificed his property, fame, health, and his words. He came to despise these things in comparison to his affection for Christ. There in his own wilderness, he hungered for wisdom and knowledge, and he writes, the words of God were made sweet as honeycombs to me. He also found moderation of anger and curbing of the tongue, the restraint of the eyes, the discipline of the belly, and the trampling underfoot of the glory which clings to the earth. In the end, Gregory's departure and subsequent return to Nazianzus underscores that for him, Christian leadership is founded on the character of the person and this character is to be modeled. The leader must be clean to clean others, wise to impart wisdom, illumined to provide insight, near to God to beckon others closer, holy to minister forth sanctification, and a servant guide so as to take others by the hand. Such formation occurs for him in significant ways in the life of deprivation and contemplation, wherein one seeks personal virtue and holiness. But he learns and offers to us the painfully gained lesson that this holiness, however, was not guardedly preserved in monastic isolation, but shared in ministry to others. Gregory, of course, is not the only early Christian father to portray virtuous character as the essence of Christian leadership. It is the standard requirement for office. In addition, Paul's list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 unsurprisingly defined the required virtues. For Jerome, in Against Jovianus, the bishop, then, must be without reproach so that he is the slave of no vice. There is no blessedness in simply holding the office. The blessedness is found in possessing the virtues that qualify one for the office. Origen anticipated the teaching of Jerome. In his theory of leadership, the mark of an authentic Christian leader is not the ordination, the election, the adulation, the symbols, or privilege associated with the post. The public office does not, in essence, identify the leader. Frequently, he notes, those who are ambitious and fixed on earthly things ascend to an exalted position, while those who are spiritual remain among the common multitudes. Nevertheless, he says, whoever has in himself those virtues that Paul lists about a bishop even if he is not a bishop before men, is a bishop before God. It is virtue that makes a bishop, not the ordination of men. We see in John Chrysostom's sermon on 1 Timothy that when he begins to treat 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, he clarifies for the congregation that when Paul speaks about the Episcopal office, he sets out with showing what sort of person a bishop ought to be. He is in first place concerned with addressing the meaning of the first verse. What is the nature of the bishop's underlying desire for the work of the episcopacy? What does he want out of it? The proper desire, the virtuous motive, is not a covetousness for dominion, authority, or power, but a desire to protect the church. Surprisingly in his sermon, Chrysostom finds Paul's list to be only a list of moderate rather than excessive requirements. The more radical teachings of Christ, he thinks, are missing for pragmatic first-century reasons. After all, he allows marriage, does not require the bishop to be crucified to the world or to lay down his life for others, and does not demand that he be an angel who is above human passion. He concludes that it must have been the case that no such angelic candidates were available to meet the church's desperate needs in the first century. His words regarding the moderate standards for leadership, however, disappear when he composes his treatise on the priesthood. Paul's situation may have influenced his first century list, but other texts seem to contribute to a portrayal of the awesome responsibility priests carry to watch over the community's soul, to teach them and warn them of approaching moral danger, appearing to argue that those who have withdrawn to the seclusion of the recluse ascetic life do not face the more difficult moral challenges of those in daily priestly congregational service. He clarifies the towering standards of virtue demanded of a communal leader. When we consider the priesthood, we are not talking about something earthly like an army or a kingdom, but about an office which needs the virtues of an angel. For the soul of the priest ought to be purer than the very sunbeams in order that the Holy Spirit may not leave him desolate, in order that he may be able to say, now I live, and yet no longer I, but Christ lives in me. Although Chrysostom readily acknowledges his own darkness and inadequacy, he is immovable on the standards for Christian leadership. His soul is to be virtuous, and its virtue is to be both light and salt. The soul of the priest should shine like a light beaming over the whole earth. Priests are the salt of the earth. In these lectures, I have one simple claim. Christian leadership is fundamentally an issue of virtuous character. Put more succinctly, leadership is character. Leaders are not identified by followers. You know a leader's soul by its virtue. I'm not interested here in issues of management or church government. And as others have done, I am not suggesting that character is one quality among others, like charisma, listening, or positive attitudes that motivate followers to follow. Such books can be helpful, but the concern is not constructing a person who attracts followers. That may be an outcome of being a virtuous leader. The concern is the presence of virtue. I am interested in the individual's virtuous qualities, what I am conveniently calling his or her soul or, if you like, his or her heart. In this first lecture, I have tried to argue the basic thesis with support from both the broader corporate popular literature and then to qualify it in a distinctly Christian fashion with the aid of voices from ancient Christianity. Although I will not ignore contemporary material, my major sources in these lectures will be from antiquity, both the pagan Greco-Roman writings and those of early Christianity. And since our survey to this point has demonstrated the prominence of Paul's words to Timothy, the virtues identified by the apostle will guide our discussion. Since our time is limited, we will confine ourselves to the study of only two. I have selected them because within antiquity, they not only identified a particular ethical commitment of their own, but also represented a cluster of other virtues. Also, the first one peers deeply into the interior desires and drive of the would-be leader, while the second addresses the person's outward orientation toward others. In 440 of our common era, Isidore of Pelusium, an Egyptian monk, sent to someone named Eustathius a copy of John Chrysostom's On the Priesthood. He recommended it to Eustathius because he expected that he would derive profit from it, as everybody usually does. For there is no single heart that has not been moved, he says, to divine love by reading this book. All will discover therein their virtues or reproach. I pray that as we revisit John and others, you will derive profit, be moved to divine love, and discover your own virtues. Thank you.